I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I hate driving sedans because I can't see out the back. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and uh, I want to, should I get a degree in mortuary science? I think you should. I really want to. I mean, I don't know. Also, like, you've inspired me, like, going back to school, you know? You can do it. Because it feels like you can't, you know what I mean? And it's like the idea of like doing homework and like being. Right. I I hate homework. One of the weirdest parts was just like the dynamic of being a student, right? Like I wasn't used to having to like be afraid of an authoritarian figure. Like Right. You're like, I'm an adult. This teacher can't do anything to me, but like they can. But I guess it's also because we don't work. We don't have like a boss. So I think for a lot of people, it probably isn't that different (laughs) than like having a boss. I have a boss. It's you. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Yeah, but I'm pretty lenient these days. It didn't used to be. It was a very strong, it was a very tense corporate environment. High stress, high stakes. Haven't I chilled out so much though? Yes. Yes. I actually am not afraid of you anymore. That's wonderful. I know. Isn't it great? (laughs) Anyway, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. I do still want to impress you, though, like you are my boss. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But don't you feel that way towards everybody? No. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, I want, like, I'm like, I want the Patreon to do well so that Allison thinks that I did a good job. (laughs) That's my truth. I want the Patreon to do well so that you're proud of me. I'm very proud of you. But like proud of me specifically for our Just Between Us Patreon doing well. Well, I I am because we're doing better than I thought we were going to. And when you sent that text, I was like, yes. <laughs> she, I immediately texted Alex. Allison's happy with the Patreon. She likes it. <laughs> I'm going to read some patrons that we have, um, but that's my truth. That's my truth. Whenever like I'm like I propose an idea and then I'm like I'm like to you, I'm like it better work because Allison needs to like it. Oh, no, I don't like that. I that I give off that vibe. Well, it's like it's like when you do a um like a presentation to your boss, like why this thing should happen. And then you want your boss to like say yes to the presentation. That's you. <laughs> to me here are my top five reasons we should do video content and then I I pray and hope that Allison says yes in the time since I just read five patrons we got five more patrons really yeah you're doing a great job oh my god thank you so much I'm like sweating okay we got Tin Rachel Franco Billy and Maggie hell yeah thank you so much we just went up yeah, we got like five new patrons in that like 30 minute span. It was like about two hours, but yeah. No, no, no. Because, well, yeah, I guess it was two hours. <laughs> I'm really excited about the Patreon. And I, I think that something that's changed for me is it used to be more important for me to be right than for a good thing to happen. Oh, thank God. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. now I don't really care if I'm right. I'm like, oh, I, maybe I was completely wrong about this. And it, and we're going to make way more money than ever before. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> I'd you love to be wrong. <laughs> pleasantly surprised. You're always surprised when this show does well in some way. You're shocked. Well, I don't know. I just, you know, I just, I think I'm much more of a realist and you lean optimist. Which is kind of crazy. I know. 
<laughs> I know that I'm, I, I, well, yeah. I mean, I'm like, you know, I love our fans. I think they really do show up for us. And like, they're just so sweet. And like, I don't know, I'm like deep in the like chats on the Patreon. If you guys are interested, I love to just like see what you guys are saying and stuff. It's really cute. I also go to the Discord and there's the Just Between Us Reddit, which is our Just Between Us pod. And I'm on both. I love both. I love it. Yeah. Also, if you want merch, it's at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. That's where our merch lives. <laughs> well, we have got a great episode for everyone today, truly. We're going to be talking to Carrie Northey all about being a funeral director and mortuary sciences. As I said, that might be my future career. I think it'd be cool. Yeah, I'm scared to go back to school, but I would, I, I've been talking about it for years. You should do it. I know. Yeah. And later, we're going to be talking all about tough love and if it works for us. I guess it works for me because I'm like, I got to make this Patreon good. (laughs) (laughs) You can join, by the way, $3 a month, but there's other tiers as well. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, Sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, 
Go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Carrie Northey, a licensed funeral director, embalmer, and educator with almost three decades of experience in the funeral business. She has a passion to help others maneuver through the funeral process and help families find the comfort, peace, and transparency they are seeking. Hello. Hello. I feel like I haven't had enough coffee to get going for this, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is so exciting because I feel like we've wanted to talk about this for a while. I'm someone who is absolutely terrified of death, whereas Gabe seems to yearn for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm so curious how you got into this career path. Of course. Yeah, I've been licensed, what, 21 years now, and I've been in the business for 30 some years. So At this point, I don't remember it being odd. I started working in a funeral home in high school because my mom worked there as an aftercare coordinator and you're 16, get a job. Okay, great. She said, hey, do you want to do this? And it was the perfect match for me at the time. That was back when funeral directors carried pagers and they needed a little freedom. And so someone was on site in the funeral home from nine to nine a lot or whatever hours just to give them a little freedom from being on site, especially small town funeral home. And that's what I did until I went off to college and then ended up back as a licensed funeral director. What's the aftercare specialist do? Um, So she would work with families during the process of the funerals and kind of connect with them there and then be their touch point for after if, gosh, she worked with people in every capacity, like Let's say uh, a woman in the role had always, like an older couple, the woman had always kept the checkbook and the man had never written a check. My mom would go sit with them and help them learn how to write checks. Take a woman to go pump gas in her car because she was 80 and didn't know how to pump gas, but she was still driving because her husband had always done it. Or, you know, those were some of the kind of far reaching, but she had groups for widows, widowers. She went and met with families that had lost a child. She just was this touch point for people when the funeral directors were tied up with at need when those families were further down the path from the funeral. Do you think that this led you to have a more like front facing view of death? Because a lot of families like don't talk about it or they don't, you don't ever see the reality until a grandparent passes away or something like that. You know, she was a nurse growing up. So only the last few years before I had worked there had she been at the funeral home. So it wasn't really a huge conversation, but I don't remember death ever being creepy, scary, anything, even though it wasn't really a forefront in our discussions. I found out later after I was licensed that my grandfather had been licensed. I didn't really know that growing up or I didn't gravitate towards that information, but he died when I was three and he had done it early on in his life. So I never even really knew that version or part of him. So I guess you could say it is in my blood, but I never knew it. And that's not why I gravitated towards it. I don't think, but it just was second place, just I would rather go sit in a funeral home. I'd be more comfortable there than I would most other places, I would think. It, it's the weirdest thing. I don't know. It's just comfort level, I guess. And what is the licensing process for this type of job? 
So it's different in every state. In Michigan, we have to have a degree in mortuary science, and that comes with a lot of um, pre-classes that we take. And they're in all sorts of areas because the hats we wear are so diverse, um, accounting and statistics and chemistry, anatomy, English, public speaking, all these different areas that we kind of touch on within our role. But it's like we're we're master of of many and expert of few, I guess. I don't I don't know how you say that. <laughs> Whatever that phrase is. And so you do all these prerequisites, then you go to mortuary school. I had a bachelor's in psychology before going. Whether it helps or not, I don't know. But I have always been interested in the psychology of just people and social experiments. I feel like maybe that's what funerals are: is this eternal social experiment that I'm watching. But then you go to mortuary school. You can either get an associate's or a bachelor's degree. Depends on your state, what you ha- what they require and what's offered at the school you go to. And then you do an apprenticeship, either six months or a year, depending what state. So it's kind of a, it's a hands-on learning, but also a college degree learning. So it's a little bit of the white collar, blue collar kind of education going through it. And then you're licensed and you're forever learning. I, I've learned, we, I just got back from the National Funeral Directors Convention in Las Vegas. So it's like six days of hundreds of funeral directors from around the world learning about the latest and greatest. And I learned so much being there after this many years in it. And that's, I think what's amazing is it is always evolving, always changing all the new dynamics of different disposition options, you know, composting and alkaline hydrolysis and cremation and green burial and traditional burial and embalming and everything. But there's always something new, always something coming that's going to be the next big thing. And um, so it just keeps you on your toes, I think. Between that and the dynamic of families and people and just humans in general, it's always something new. Do you mean like new in terms of like techniques for what to do with the body? A bit. So in terms of embalming, we are, our bodies are a chemistry experiment for pharmaceuticals. So we don't know when we get a human in front of us, we could get two 40 year old women, both died of breast cancer, but the medications that they both went through and the treatments they both went through could be vastly different and how their bodies reacted to all of them. So we could put the same chemicals in them for an embalming process and have radically different outputs or outcomes from what happens with those bodies because of how the chemicals neutralized from what medicines were in their body. We are just walking medicine cabinets, it seems nowadays. And so (laughs) we don't know what is in people. So we can't really go into it knowing we've got, now we've got the huge you know, fentanyl, what is fentanyl doing to bodies? And what is that mixed into? We don't know what's mixed into. And what's that going to do when we put chemicals into somebody to try to do a temporary preservation for viewing? And there's just so many variables and it is constantly changing and it's constantly evolving. And I mean, look at COVID. COVID was not something anybody could have predicted throwing at our um, industry. And, you know, goodness, did it just uproot us and change everything we did for a few years. And yeah, you just don't know what's coming. There's so much yeah. on the on the forefront and then different disposition choices. It's it, who knew that we would now not just have burial cremation. Now it's what people call water cremation or alkaline hydrolysis. We also now have composting, as people call it, or terramation is another name for it. And there's all these other variations that are coming up that are maybe not in America yet, that are still in other countries, they're not legal yet, that are just the, on the horizon that eventually will be options. So it's not just a straight, okay, do you want to be buried or cremated? There's 
all these other variables now. So it is, it's ever, ever changing, which is it's, it's a slow industry to change, but it's also very quick paced, which how it does both. I don't know, but it does. (laughs) (laughs) Can you dive into those other forms that we're maybe not as familiar with? Like what is water cremation? Yeah. So alkaline hydrolysis is the technical name. A lot of funeral directors hate that the term is called water cremation, but it's the most relatable to consumers. And as it's getting legalized in states, basically the legalization process is forcing the wording to say cremation in it, even though cremation by definition is the breakdown of a body by flame. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's not really that. So it's a tube. It fills with water and you put chemicals in it that are lye based and you are naturally breaking down the body with these chemicals over about a seven hour period. You're not boiling the body. If the the unit reaches boiling point, it shuts itself down and it basically just gyrates and moves that water around and breaks the body down. The end result is cremated remains. It is a little finer and whiter than traditional cremated remains, but you're still receiving back this box of cremated remains of your loved one. It is a very sterile process. Mayo Clinic has been using it for years to dispose of specimens and samples and things because it's such a sterile process. And why would someone be drawn to that that? over regular cremation? Um, They may not like flame. They may not like um, the output. So cremation, flame cremation and burial have about the exact same environmental footprint. Flame cremation is not environmentally friendly. You are using a lot of gas resource and you are outputting a lot of emissions It is not great for the environment, just like traditional burial. I mean, you're using up resource the same, whereas water cremation, you're using some electricity and you're putting water back into the water table. So you're not really using it up. And the off put from it, it, they call it liquid gold. It's so densely nutrient rich that forestry service is begging to buy it to fertilize out on their forests. Wow. So it's pretty amazing. And then you have composting or terramation as well. It is going to be the most widely utilized and legalized, I would say, probably before water cremation, because water cremation has the overseers of water involved, which gets Mm. really sticky, where composting, it doesn't have as much oversight by those departments. At the end, you have compost. And you can go spread it in the forest. You can do whatever with it and people can take it home. It's a very, very cool process. What I've learned about it, I haven't gone and seen a facility because the people that I know that are doing it are out in like Seattle and Oregon, you know, out in those (laughs) state areas. And it's just really cool. Like they have said, what was it? How it was explained to me. It is a slower let go because people can come sit with the box that they're being composted in as the process is happening for, I think it's 60 days. And so they can come put stickers and spend some time with their loved one, not underground, not in a machine, just in this box kind of, so they can kind of gradually let go. And I think that's kind of a cool, unique thing rather than going and sitting above ground and your loved one somewhere down there, this you're sitting next to a box mm. that they're in. You're just physically not seeing them for a much longer period of time, whether it's good or bad. I don't know. 
not a psychologist, Mm -hmm. but it's very intriguing for that. And it is very natural. And then you can take mom home and put her in the rose garden, or you can take your loved one and go put them in the forest or whatever you want to do. So there's a lot of new, interesting things that are available. Not as much here in middle America, in Michigan, where we're a little more vanilla when it comes to all of that, but we can still, I can still put a body on the plane here and ship them out to go have those processes done anywhere. Wow. They don't have to be embalmed or anything. We just put them on a plane and go. And what is embalming? Cause I don't think Jews do that, right? Um, they can. If, uh, if we want to have like a, a viewing, I guess. Yeah, it's not traditional. It's very, uh, very frowned upon, especially um, very Orthodox Judaism. It's you're burying very quickly. Yeah. And yes. very naturally. Um, the washing is done and then service and then burial. Um, mm-hmm. Very much like Muslim and, and such faiths as well. Um, and so embalming is a temporary preservation of a deceased body for a um, service purpose, for a ritualistic purpose in terms of having a funeral, having a viewing, something of that nature. We can control the color. We can control what happens with the body more than we can just refrigeration or cold packs and things. You can do it that way, but you can't control a lot of what happens to the body. So this way we do control more. There's a lot of, you know, people who are like, well, you're polluting the the ground with chemicals or you're using this, that or the other, but it's been around for a very long time. You know, Egyptians all the way back to the Egyptians that is embalming. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. It's just changed form over the years and we can do internal. We can just do some external. We can do anything we do as temporary preservation of the body. The traditional kind of, as it most people know it, is injecting a chemical, and as we inject, it pushes out the blood. So it's a replacement system that we're just putting in something to temporarily preserve and taking out the blood, which is going to break down the body quicker. And then you often have people doing like the hair and makeup on the body as well, right? Yeah, typically it is the embalmer or somebody in the care center. Family can come in and do hair and makeup. We are going to also assist with them. Doing hair and makeup on a deceased is not as it would be on a living, obviously, Mm -hmm. because the colors of the skin on a dead person is not going to look like living. So you have to use a little more red. You've got to use a little more variation in color and bring back the hot points like the tip of the nose, eyelids and things by using colors you maybe wouldn't previously. And hair, you're working against gravity. So it's not just as easy as, oh, you have cute bangs. Well, those bangs don't want to stay forward (laughs) Mm -hmm. and lay where they would. So you've got to work with the hair a little different. So we try and work along with people if they do come in to want to do hair and makeup and dress their loved one, which is an option. It's not illegal. It's not anything bad. And there are people who want to be very hands-on, especially certain religions do want to be hands-on. People of the Mormon faith will come and dress their loved ones um, Jewish faith, Muslims, Hindus, different, a lot of different faiths. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. What was it like for you to get used to being around dead bodies? Or do you not even, was that not even like thing for you. <laughs> you know, it's I try and remember back to when it was maybe odd. And I try and remember back to those first few weeks of working at the funeral home. And I think I always just had a curiosity. 
I remember big moments of wow, where the funeral director walked me in and said, this gentleman took his own life. And I'm like, well, how? And he's like, well, he shot himself in the head. And I'm like, where? And he said, exactly. He said, this is what we can do. How you can restore someone, how you can cover, how you can bring back a version of the person for the family to say goodbye to. And I think it's those wow moments that were what drew me in and what made me want to be part of it with a family. I went to school to be an epidemiologist. I thought that was super fascinating until I found out it was all math, basically. (laughs) And it wasn't like, you know, being an FBI agent for epidemics essentially is how I thought it was. (laughs) And it's not. And I'm really not good at biology or chemistry. And so I didn't do well freshman year. And I was like, goodness, what am I going to do? And my mom's like, why don't you try this? And so I went down the psychology path and then ended up doing my apprenticeship. And I thought, okay, this is working hands-on is where I'm going to really figure out if I'm going to love it. And it took like one or two weeks. And I worked with a couple of very specific families, a family of a little girl um, died of a heart condition and I stood up there with her mom and helping put her little Girl Scout rings on her finger. And I was like, okay, this is that moment. You know, that is the moment I think that I knew. It took a few more of the big moments for me to really give in and say, okay, my mom was right. But it was those little little moments that turned out to be big moments for me, I think, where I, I saw the difference. I connected with people. I, I knew that where my place was, I think within an industry. It's changed over the years. I like teaching now a lot. I teach for a mortuary school, along with working in a funeral home, along with doing the social media, along with doing educational classes. But it's, I think the variety keeps me interested in it, where I think I would have hit a rut a long time ago if I hadn't started mixing it up and maybe doing other things and using the knowledge and still learning along the way. And there's just so much to it. And I just love it as I get into it and talk about it and stuff. How do you deal with the, the family of it all? Like you're talking about helping this mother with her child. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how does that, how, how do you deal with that? It's not even a, I don't even blink my eyes at it. I think sometimes because when you learn, when you start working in the funeral home, I think you, you get your disconnect button. You figure out what your disconnect button is. When I'm training new people, when they come in, one of the first things I tell them, as I said, you really need to remember to repeat to yourself, this is not my left one. This is not my loss. This is not my left one. This is not my loss. Because if I stand at that casket and I start imagining, what if this was my kid? What if this was my moment? What if I had this loss? How would I go on? Then it's about me and I can't help anybody. And so I so many times have said that. And I that's one of my first, like, this is in my training. I'm going to tell you. And people have come back and said, oh my gosh, I did that. And what a difference that made. Yeah. Because if we get caught up in our own emotions for a loss that isn't ours, then we are worthless as funeral providers. So we really have to focus on the care we're giving. And sometimes we do run into where the lines are crossed. I've, I've taken care of my um, grandparents. I've taken care of my niece. I've taken care of friends, family, people I've known my whole life. Those get harder. But I think I had gotten enough like edge at that point for good or bad that I went into, I go into funeral director mode. If there's a loss anywhere connected around me, I go into funeral director mode. Like, okay, who do I need to embalm? What crematory do I need to call? Like, who do I need to reach out to? Where can I, where, what can I do in that capacity to help? Because I don't know how to help any other way. I can bake a casserole, but I can get a casket way better. 
or wait here, you know, kind of thing. Like, (laughs) which side do you want me on? Um, So it's easier for me to fall in the funeral director role. But then after everything's done, I have to be that the friend or the aunt or the grandchild at some point. Mm -hmm. So it catches up eventually. I just don't know if it ever fully does and ever. I don't know, as funeral directors, do we ever process all of it healthy or safely? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's normal at this point (laughs) with all of it. Yeah, you're providing a service. Right. But I think working with families, there's some families, like the situation seems super sad, super emotional, but maybe it's been such a pain in the butt to get to that final moment that you're just happy the whole thing's done. Yeah. That you've, you've lost even getting tied up in the emotions because it's just been such a go rodeo or you've had to deal with some people who have been overly demanding, overly annoying, overly whatever, ever, which is terrible to say that people are annoying or people, but there are, people are just sometimes demanding in ways that they don't need to be or rude in ways they don't need to be or completely illogical. That's not usually the immediate family. It's the extra people around, like the helper people, I call them, who are like, well, we think we're going to do better for this family by coming in here and trying to be a helper. And they don't. They just make it way more chaotic for people. And you have to like, it's kind of like you're the, the line, you know, the lineman who has to come in and like hit off somebody before they get to the, t- the quarterback because they're coming yeah. in from like left field and they have no place coming in and you have to like lay them out. That's what it feels like sometimes is like get them off, off their feet off in the other direction. But. Did that even yeah. answer your question? I have no, no, idea. no. I mean, I, I, I appreciate you answering it in terms of, you know, what you are personally going through. And I think it is like a superpower to have to be able to provide for other people. I guess also like family dynamics are so interesting to me too. Like just from deaths in my own family, but like, you know, the ways in which you, you're talking about being a lineman or being sort of yeah. the person who has to interface with like, the most annoying family member or who has to interface with the parent who maybe is like completely shell-shocked by an unexpected child's death or like you're kind of constantly dealing with like other people's emotional situations or dynamics. So is there a way that you're like, okay, I'm going to go in here and try to suss out what the dynamic is between these people or like suss out who I'm supposed to be talking to and who I'm not supposed to be talking to? Well, right up front, we find out who the main people are. It is a very clearly legal laid out next of kin order. So the daughter who is, let's say, you know, 80 year old ladies died. Her daughter's lived with her for 10 years. Her son, she hasn't spoke to in 30. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. They both have exactly the same legal rights to take care of that woman. It doesn't matter who called mom more on her birthday. It doesn't matter any of that. They were both legally her children both legally have every right to say what happens so Mm. right up front we figure out who the players are and who has every legal right people don't know that like power of attorney ends at death like sorry your power went away when the person died people don't know that durable power of attorney ends at death you have no more power now gone executorship lets you take care of an estate but that doesn't give you the right to take care of a body in every state so it just depends on your state and the legal rights This has become a huge, huge discussion recently, and I attended a great seminar at the National Field Directors this last week about, like, the LGBTQ community. Right. And what a 
big thing this was. I just recently reached out to the coalition in our community and said, hey, can I come speak to you guys? Because in Michigan, we have called what is a disposition designation form. So like I can say, hey, I want Gabe to take care of me when I die. That trumps everybody, but it has to legally be processed the correct way. And I've talked to a lot of lawyers and they don't even know what this is in Michigan. They just tell people to put it in your will and that does nothing in Michigan. And so within the LGBTQ community and um, the way relationships are and, you know, birth families and chosen families and all these different things, this becomes a huge conversation. This becomes a big issue where, um, you know, transgender people having to go back to birth gender because their families want that and nobody has any power above the birth. So many dynamics that are now new, now a huge discussion, and that we want to make sure people are aware of things. And we had people talking about grieving and the loss, kind of like if you have a grandma or a mom, let's say your mom has dementia Mm -hmm. or Alzheimer's. You have already said goodbye to your mom long before you lost her physically. You Mm -hmm. lost the version of her you knew for 50 years of your life. Like I've said, I'm constantly feel like I'm getting educated about new family dynamics and new social situations that they've been around, but they're now prominent and people are talking about them and people are fighting for their rights to what they would like, where previously it went kind of just to the wayside. Within my career, have had two same-sex couples been together 30 years and the partner is outed out of the whole process of the funeral because the family didn't want them there and it wasn't legal for them to get married. So they legally lost or they didn't ever have the choice to have the legal right to be part of things and they didn't get to say goodbye to their partner. Yeah, the AIDS crisis absolutely decimated financially, decimated. They were booted from their homes because they weren't legally married. Yeah, it's really wild. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't around for the, the AIDS epidemic when it was huge. But a lot of that fear, and yes, a lot of it was directed towards kind of one segment of society, but that same fear came back into play during COVID. That's what I was going to ask. So with COVID, for you guys, frontline, right, for COVID. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that. Front, absolute <laughs> frontline. So beginning stages of COVID, right, you're dealing with bodies that you don't know if those bodies are contagious. You don't know if there's... if. if so like, how are you dealing? I mean, this, this is a bit of a once in a lifetime, I hope so, knock on wood yes, situation. Exactly. But like, how are you dealing with like an influx of bodies that you don't know if these bodies are dangerous? Like you don't know what what the infection passage situation is like. Yeah. How, how did that play out? So luckily I wasn't in a huge kind of episode in like New York or, or something, but a lot of people just leaned on fear. Mm-hmm. They went ultra safe. They said, we're only doing cremation. There is no viewing. We're not even handling these bodies. They're going direct cremation immediately. Other people stepped back and said, okay, what are we dealing with? Let's look at the situation at hand. And if we take this type of precaution, what will be the end result? I think it was the lack of information in the beginning and people just went with what they could, I think, to feel like they were going to survive. 
and we had no real direction. The CDC did say some things in the beginning, but what's interesting is I contacted the CDC recently. I, I called them on the phone. They responded by email. I said, hey, do you have embalming protocols for like Ebola or all these other, mm-hmm. pand- you know, these other epidemics? Their response to me by email was, we looked into this. We have no embalming protocols on anything. And I'm really? like, huh, okay. That's fascinating since we were told all these weird things we had to do previous. But, you know, there was refrigerator trucks. There was quick, quick cremations. I think a huge part of it was people didn't really have options. We couldn't gather. We couldn't get people into the funeral home. We couldn't bring together more than 10 people at a time. If we did, it had to be outside. So we were basically the no people. Nope, you don't get to do this. Nope, you don't get to do that. But then people got creative. They started having drive-through visitations where they would place the body in a casket in the portico kind of window or something of the funeral home and people could drive by and wave at the family. Or they would start having, we did a lot of live streaming where we made it visually viewable for anybody who wanted to attend. So people started getting creative, especially when we got a year or so in. The influx of bodies was crazy and you just did what you did. The crematories were running as fast as they could. I remember talking to people out in New York and they would get up and the line would start at like 5 a.m. at the crematories and people would get there and they would line up and whoever was first, they would take the first like however many bodies and everyone else had to go back and try again the next day because you can only cremate so many people a day. And that's what they did over and over and over to try and get these bodies processed. It was just a large influx. I will say, though, the larger influx almost came the fall would have been, not this last fall, it would have been two years ago this fall. It started in like October through February. And we had this like, we were getting at a larger volume funeral home, we were getting eight to 10 calls a night, which is, it was a lot. I mean, we usually get maybe two, three a night at the most. We were like four or five days out booking when we would sit down with families even. And usually someone dies during the night, you get them in that day and you meet with them. We were days out. People were like, what's going on? We're like, we, we, we physically are, we can't keep up with this. We are going as fast as we can. We can't even get into the cemetery for days. And that's what was going on during COVID. But these were not COVID deaths. So we started talking to people around the country and we're like, what's going on? And we found out, we figured out that it was just healthcare, lack of healthcare. Durations on death certificates were like one week of cancer because by the time they were able to get to a doctor, able to get seen, their cancer was so far gone. It was, there was no time. So it wasn't like eight months of cancer. It was like one week of cancer times. It was just lack of, you know, people staying in their homes and not going to the doctor, not being able to get in the doctor you know, different things, which is still the case. It's still really hard to get into the doctor. And so I think people give up or they just sideline their thoughts about it. And they just are like, well, we'll try again in a few weeks. And then that becomes two months or three months. And then, and that's what a lot of those deaths I think were attributed to in the long run. If we had to like go back and, you know, kind of maybe look at death certificates and guess, but it was a very weird, crazy time. And what's crazy is how much it's condemned even now talking about a lot of it. And so I've tried to do some videos on some stuff and got shut down (laughs) by stuff because it's trying to give medical advice when it's not. And so there is a lot of um, contentious discussion around it still, which is really interesting. 
So, which I can't get into even more of that or else I don't want you guys to get dinged for anything, but wild. It's weird, but I hope to gosh, never have to relive that period of, I hope, I think everybody is on board with saying they hope to never relive that time period and the extremes of it. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. Tatala T2. Just between us.